Thank you for listening to Schick Talk, the new podcast produced by the Swine Health Information Center. I'm Barb Detterman, your host for today's episode. But first, a little background information about Schick for those of you who are not familiar with our work. Schick was launched in June of 2015 when the swine industry was fighting a new disease challenge, PED. The National Pork Board Checkoff started this project to fill a gap that they had identified, a gap in the swine health area of preparedness, prevention, and response. Checkoff then offered to the industry organizations the opportunity to be on the board of directors and help direct Schick's work. Dr. Paul Sundberg, a familiar face in the pork industry, is the executive director of Schick and guides the organization with the assistance of a board of directors and two working groups. These folks work hard to fulfill Schick's mission, which is to protect and enhance the health of the U.S. swine herd through coordinated global disease monitoring, targeted research investments that minimize the impact of future disease threats, and analysis of swine health data. Let's visit with Dr. Paul Sundberg, Executive Director of Swine Health Information Center, about our new podcast, Schick Talk. Dr. Sundberg, why Schick and why a new podcast? As Schick goes about its business of helping to protect the health of the U.S. swine herd, this is going to give us a new way to share information about emerging disease prevention, preparedness, and response. And we're going to do that with pork producers and with their veterinarians and others in the pork industry. In Schick Talk, we'll be giving today's information about emerging domestic diseases in the U.S. and about foreign animal diseases around the world. We'll be talking with experts and with people with on-the-ground experience, so anyone will be able to listen to the conversation anywhere at any time. So, Dr. Sunberg, is Schick Talk the only way to learn more information? Well, we're adding the new podcast as an additional way to learn more. There's a lot of emerging disease and program information on our website, www.swinehealth.org. And that's also where you can sign up for our monthly e-newsletter so you can get regular updates in your inbox. Thanks for listening. We are starting our podcast series with an interview with Dr. Joe Connor of Carthage Veterinary Services. He is a member of Schick's Monitoring and Analysis Working Group. Dr. Connor is telling us about the test and remove protocols being followed in some China herds for African swine fever eradication. Let's hear what he has to say. Let's get started. First of all, we'll just talk a little bit about some of the information that you were sharing with Paul about some of the clients that you have in China, but most importantly, some of the things that they're trying to do with ASF. So could you explain to us a little bit about this test to remove technique that you're using in China or some of the herds are using in China for ASF and how's it working? Uh, yes, I sure can. I, and I think it's interesting that it, it does go back to what we know about the transmission of the virus and uh, how we might be able to control it. And what's developed in a number of the uh, Chinese herds has been a test and removal where they would identify the clinical signs, remove those animals by euthanasia, concurrently run a PCR to confirm either a positive or negative 
And over time, their experience has been that that can be effective in many situations. The other thing they've done to think about the individual animal and slowing down transmission, even in the gestation barns, many of them have gone and put uh, solid dividers in between in the water trough between each individual sow and put nipple waters on the stall itself. And the idea there is that stop transmission laterally because the virus moves relatively slow. So stop the communal use of uh, a water trough and a feed trough, allowing them then more time to identify that individual animal and remove it. They still have to make a decision about uh, how many animals do they remove. So is that only the single animal or is that uh, several animals on each side? And that just depends on the setup of the gestation barn itself, or it could be a gilt developer barn itself. If they believe they have minimal contact between adjacent animals in the gestation barn, they would only remove maybe the animal themselves that is showing clinical signs and uh, one or two animals on either side. If they still have open troughs and they don't have individual, then they would remove animals along that entire trough in an effort to uh, stop the spread of the virus. And so what I see is developed is just, again, because of experience, better detection of the early clinical signs of a animal that is infected. They support that with rectal temperatures. Second would be that they have a PCR diagnostics so they can uh, confirm a yes or a no. Third, they lock that animal down by either, or that area down, either by, as I mentioned, the individual stall. If it is uh, finishing, it might be the individual pin. If it's a solid uh, pin divide, or if it's open, then it would be by the trough, or it might be by the barn. The other thing, the fourth thing they do is that when they have a suspect animal or animals and are waiting for confirmation, they totally lock that building down by people movement, uh, traffic in and out, animals in and out, until again they get confirmation as of a yes or a no. And then I think the fifth, the fifth thing that we see is that they take great care in removing those animals. So again, they're thinking in terms of how do I stop the spread? So they might euthanize that animal uh, in the individual stall or the pen and wrap that animal up so that they don't get any of the uh, material that would further contaminate along the alleyway on the way out. And what we've seen develop over time is that those that put all of those steps in place have been relatively successful at uh, saving the remainder of the population, either in that barn or um, in that section of the barn or the site itself. Very good. Are there, are there any other countries that are using this uh, technique? Uh, they're the first ones that we're, we're aware that are. And I, you have to, I think it takes all of those steps almost in synchrony or in decision-making synchrony in order to make it successful. Okay. But we have seen times where they've only removed, say, seven animals out of a gestation barn of 2,400 head and, and not had the rest of that population uh, become infected or contaminated. So they follow up with then uh, sampling or primarily using uh, oral fluid sampling or swab, oral swab sampling 
to then continue to sample the rest of the population. So if, if they find, find a positive, then they do sample everything in the barn or just? Correct. Everything. Yes. Okay. And like you were explaining, the number of animals that they remove depends on the communal use of the feed trough or the water or whatever. It, it is a decision that's made game time or is it a decision that they have figured out a long time ahead that because of the way we have this barn set up, this is what we would have to do? Uh, it, it's a work in progress. So they would know how that barn is set up to start with. Mm-hmm. And they would already have at least the thought process of how they were going to make decisions. But it still depends on the barn itself and uh, whether there's individual stalls and separation and whether there's been animal movement. Because as we're all aware, uh, frequently you move animals yesterday, find out that today you've got a positive. So you've got to go back and track where did I move that animal yesterday? And then do I need to remove additional animals that would have, are now adjacent to that animal. So those decisions have to be made in real time and in the barn. Do they have a really good tracking system for their animal movements that, uh, that they're using? It is no different than ours. And there is a differences as well in the quality of their PCRs. So I think that probably separates some success, some companies from other companies. Uh, they are improving in parallel. Are they using some of the same PCRs? CR tests that we're using or totally different things? Uh, No, using the same, even though typically there, the individual company has developed its own PCR. So the variation and the validation, particularly as they move to uh, saliva, oral fluids, is not always been in parallel to uh, the validation of, uh, of the whole blood PCR. So the oral fluids is approved by their their, com- their country? No, not, <laughs> not as we think. It's not validated as such. Okay. But okay. the individual companies there test and use the oral swabs and then validate against their own whole blood PCR. But there's not a standardized system across the uh, industry. And the reason they move to uh, oral swabs, and the reason we'd want to do two as well, is that they don't want any blood contamination as the first source of cross-contamination between adjacent animals. And particularly when you're going down and you're going to have to sample the entire population, got that risk of contamination, as well as you've got the labor of collecting whole blood on all of those animals versus using the swabs. Now, one of the things our industry is looking at is we do need to validate the oral swabs and the technique of those oral swabs, which is different than collecting rope oral fluids. And so that's something that is being pushed up through the system. It will be important because we'll have the same constraints and the same thoughts of how we want to contain this virus uh, now that we know with with their experience that we do have a good probability of containing and then a test and removal uh, would uh, work as uh, needed. I was just going to ask you, what lessons are there in there for our U.S. industry? Uh, there, there's actually a lot of lessons, and I think part of that's all, it's certainly being supported as well by the uh, veterinarians that's interacted with the uh, production in Russia as well. That 
that if we have in place good education, so we know what the clinical signs are in a process, and we have PCR tests available, and then we focus very, very intensely on uh, containment, so biocontainment. And I'd say that's been uh, well uh, supported by uh, veterinarians in these large systems. I see we are now, it's been diagnosed in India as well, so it's the, it is marching on and it isn't slowing down any place. Do you think that we as an industry are prepared to take the steps that we need to do to react quickly? Well, Barb, I think indirectly, the harvest disruption we've had has also prepared us for a foreign animal disease introduction. In our mock studies that we've, we've all participated in, actually removal of herds and how we were going to do that was one of the challenges. And, and clearly that's what we're working through today. And we clearly got the bottlenecks. We now have, we'll have a much clearer understanding when we come out of this harvest disruption about how do we manage those bottlenecks. Individual state producer organizations are and have come up with equipment that would help us uh, euthanize and remove, but we still have a need to figure out how to euthanize uh, large populations effectively and how to dispose of those large populations. So I do think as we debrief after this harvest interruption, then we will be able to use that uh, going forward. The uh, second thing would be that today within those zones, it's very clear what we would do in terms of removal and test and removal. So the things that we've talked about, about individual removal and containment really would be on down the road as the next phase versus today we would have to remove and uh, destroy those populations. Those will still come into place first. The question would be if the virus moves rapidly through the industry without containment, then does that become a strategy? Or as we all know that because it would disrupt our exports, we still have to look first toward full removal of those populations. I think the important thing that uh, we've learned is, though, that you can con- you have a high probability of containing the virus if you do those steps. So it wouldn't change the uh, outcome in terms of short-term and exports, but it would get us back to uh, herds that would be uh, free if we could declare those free and then back to market access again. Since the virus is so slow moving, this technique is working. Would this technique work on any other viruses population has to worry about? This is a particular virus that doesn't move readily by aerosol. So okay. there's actually very few in that category that don't either move further by aerosol or move by uh, fecal contamination. If it's a virus that moves only by fecal contamination, then the solid dividers and removals and tests uh, have an opportunity of uh, containment. Where would you like to see research dollars put next to further this uh, information and learning? We do have research dollars to validate project that's in Vietnam and the oral fluids and the swabbing. Uh, we've got to be sure our laboratories are already here and be sure that we can use the uh, uh, the swabs and that there's not tr- large variation in technique on how those swabs are taken that would affect the outcome because of the uh, cost of being a, a false negative. So I think we have the diagnostic steps 
being funded and look at that we need we definitely need to push them over the uh, over the end line and have them accepted as a, a method for sample collection well i think the the focus what it is teaching us is that we need to move to the next step of biosecurity which is really biocontainment which can apply to the other viruses and bacteria that we see. So it's a matter of starting to change our mindset that what can we do is what the next generation biosecurity, which is really directed toward biocontainment. And how do we think only in terms of an individual population being infected and protecting the uh, larger adjacent populations? Thank you for listening to Schick Talk from the Swine Health Information Center. Learn more about our organization and our mission to protect the health of the U.S. swine herd at www.swinehealth.org.